Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. have all done my heart a great deal of good even though you don't know it. In nearly 19 years of being here, we must have done something right because I told you all to stay away. I thought after last week when we were just the skeleton crew, I woke up this morning and thought, well, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and it's just going to be the skeleton crew. And it's not. And I think that is a testimony to the value of Christ and his resurrection in your life, that you wanted to get up anyway, despite the coronavirus, despite the warnings from the government, and despite your own pastor saying, stay away. You showed up here anyway. There's no better place to go. Well, let's just hope that God is glorified by the fact that we've all gathered together on this Resurrection Sunday to think about him. There are people around the country who were not able to meet this morning. The internet is... Uh, crowded this morning with online services from various different places. So for all of you listening on the internet who might feel bad or who might feel guilty about not being able to go to church on this day of all days, let me see if I can relieve your conscience a little bit. In the earliest days of GCA, I earned my reputation as an iconoclast. I spent most of my time going around pushing over other people's idols. In those early days, I talked about Christmas, and I talked about holidays like Halloween, and I talked about Easter and Palm Sunday at one point. So I'm not trying to go back to my iconoclastic days here. But let me just say that the date for Easter Sunday is not established biblically outside of it being on the lunar calendar the first day of the week after Passover. But we don't live by the lunar calendar. We live by a solar calendar. Now, the date for Easter was established by the Council of Nicaea 325 AD, they decided that it was going to be the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. So the spring equinox is around March 21st, and then the first full moon after that, the Sunday after that, is how they've determined Easter would be observed. But of course, on the lunar calendar that the Hebrews are following, they don't care about that. They care about the fact that the first month of the year of their lunar calendar is the month of Abib, and on the 14th day of that month, or the month of Nisan, that's when Passover happens, and therefore Jesus would have gotten up on the first day of the week following Passover. And that's why in some years like we had a couple of years ago, Easter occurs before Passover. It actually occurred a couple weeks before Passover because of those calendrical disagreements. But the word of encouragement that I want to give folks who couldn't make it to church this morning is that this is just simply the day that we have all decided collectively to observe the resurrection of Christ. But Christ is a resurrected Lord every day of the year. Amen. 
So the fact that today on the calendar is the day that some people decided in 325 AD that the church collectively would observe the Easter service is really just a decision in history of the church. And so if you weren't able to make it to church this morning and you feel bad because it's Easter and you weren't able to get there, just remember that that was an invention that human beings invented just so that we could all agree on which day we would recognize the resurrection of Christ. Now on this particular year, we are fortunate because Passover was just a couple days ago. And now it is Resurrection Sunday. And so both the lunar and the solar calendar kind of lined up this year. But that was happenstance. We here at GCA serve a risen Lord every time we get together. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, every time we open the Bible, we are talking about God's revelation of himself through his risen Christ, through whom he redeemed people. The whole of the Bible is the story of redemption. And we, like other churches, have had to alter our plans. Our intention, our plan, was that this was going to be homecoming weekend. Yesterday, Don Tyndall would have been standing here at the pulpit. Last night, we would have all eaten together, and today we would be having communion together. We have decided that what we're going to do is postpone the communion, because again, remember all that calendar stuff I just told you? We're going to postpone our collective communion until the first Sunday that we're all allowed to be back here as a congregation, as a group, communing together and communing with God. That is when we'll have communion together. Because, as I said, we understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ every day of the year, and we're not about to be waylaid by a virus or by the state, God still deserves to have his word preached. Christ still deserves to be lifted up. And we still need to remember that he is risen indeed. Yes. Turn to the book of Luke. This morning we're going to take a moment out from the series that we've been doing and we are going to look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. A little New Testament, a little Old Testament, and then finally, if there's enough time, finally we are going to talk about the importance of the resurrection to our Christian theology. I am starting in Luke 23, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now this was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, 
you will be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun being obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the multitudes who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And behold, a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and their action. A man of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. And it was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed after and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. If that had been where the story ended, what a sad story that would be. The Son of God came to the planet and wicked, sinful men killed him, put him in a tomb. Everybody assumed he was dead and he was going to stay dead. But then chapter 24, suddenly it gets really good. Starting at verse 1, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, and these words appeared to the apostles as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling, at that which had happened. For 2,000 years, the church has been marveling at that ever since. To this very day, they have not found the body. To this very day, there's been no corpse, nor historically is there any evidence that anybody ever had the body. The reality is Jesus was actually dead. They put him in a tomb. You don't put people in a tomb unless you're sure they're dead. He was actually dead and then actually raised. And that is one of the most astounding facts of human history. That is one of the factors that lays at the very heart of the Christian church. The Christian church exists because he is raised. And we can talk about all the other theology and doctrine, and we do, and we enjoy doing it. 
and we've been doing that for a long time. And we can read through all the books of the Bible. We've been trying to. We have taught verse by verse through the vast majority of the Old and New Testament. And yet, none of that matters if he didn't get up. Christianity makes no sense if Christ didn't get up. But if Christ got up, that is the most amazing, most remarkable thing you've ever heard in your silly little life. Because it can give you the confidence, it can give you the hope, it can give you the understanding of the whole rest of the Word of God. And that's what we're going to do this morning, is take a little time to look at the Word of God in the Old Testament where God was preparing for this very event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We're going to start this morning in Numbers 33, because 1,400 years before Christ was even on the planet, God started teaching the exact time, the exact events when his Passover lamb was going to be killed, and not just the day that he would die, but also the day that he would get up again, and the day that the promised Holy Spirit would come to the church. All of that was predicted for 1,400 years and planted in feasts that God laid out for the Jews who then kept those feasts for all those hundreds of years without ever understanding what they were doing or why these feasts were so important. But those feasts all foreshadowed and predicted the coming Christ, the very center of all redemptive history. So we're going to start in Numbers 33, starting at verse 1. These are the journeys of the sons of Israel by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting places. They journeyed from Ramses on the first month On the 15th day of the first month. Why is that date so important? This is not just a historical fact of history that they left Egypt on the 15th day. But on the 14th day of that same month, something incredibly significant happened, which was that the death angel passed through Egypt, killing all the firstborn. That night there was weeping and wailing in the land of Egypt. And yet God had revealed to his people the way that they could be safe from that plague passing through Egypt that night if they would just take a baby lamb into their home a couple days in advance and then sundown, the beginning of the 14th day of the month, they would start preparing that lamb to be slaughtered. And then during the day of the 14th, the father of the family was required to slay that lamb, collect the blood, and then put that blood with hyssop over the lentil and the doorpost of their house. And when the death angel came through Egypt, if he saw the blood of a sacrificial lamb on the door of the house, he would pass over that house. And that's where we get the word Passover to this very day. Now, one of the really interesting theological realities of the death angel looking for that blood is that the death angel did not stop at the door to find out whether the inhabitants of that house were worthy or not. All he needed to see was the blood. If he saw the blood, he would pass over that house. God, on the 14th day of the month, passed over his people because they obediently did what he had revealed to them. And in type and in shadow, they demonstrated that the lamb sacrificed at Passover was going to be enough to protect them from death. On the 15th day, then, they left Egypt. And from that point forward, God began giving them days of memorial so that they would remember those particular events. These are the first of the feast days. The other feast days are added later. 
but first there was Passover and then there was the day they left Egypt which God then said was the beginning of the feast of unleavened bread leaven becomes a type and a symbol of sin and God tells all of Israel that they have to get all the leaven out of their camp and they have to have it out by the 15th day of the month and they have to keep it out of their house for an entire week in fact he designates the first and the last day as a high day as a Sabbath day when they're going to do no servile work that's laid out for us in numbers 28 on the 14th day of the month shall be the Lord's Passover on the 15th day of this month shall be a feast unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days on the first day shall be a holy convocation and you shall do no laborious work you shall present an offering by fire a burnt offering to the Lord two bulls and one ram and seven male lambs one year old having them without any defect for their grain offering you shall offer fine flour mixed with oil three tenths of an ephah for a bull and two tenths for the ram one-tenth of an ephah you shall offer for each of the seven lambs and one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you and you shall present these besides the burnt offerings of the morning which is for a continual burnt offering and after this manner you shall present daily for seven days the food of the offering of the fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord and it shall be presented with its drink offering in addition to the continual burnt offering and on the seventh day you shall have a holy convocation you shall do no laborious work that sounds like it's really important to God the first day and the last day holy convocations on the first and last day he lays out exactly what sacrifices and what drink offerings and what food offerings have to go with it and then every day there have to be continual offerings why why does that start on the 15th day because God was already teaching already predicting the coming Christ he was already demonstrating the calendar that he was working on that his son was going to satisfy when his son became the final sacrifice so on the day of Passover lamb sacrifice on the day of unleavened bread get the sin out of your camp sacrifice 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 because this is all about the sacrifice and that sacrifice is going to be satisfied according to the writer of Hebrews by the once for all sacrifice for sin by Jesus Christ in which he perfected forever those that he sanctified in Leviticus 23 then starting at verse 1 God says I the Lord spoke again to Moses saying speak to the sons of Israel and say to them the Lord's appointed times that word appointed times is that word feast the feast days and that's more accurately the NASB translates it more accurately these are the set times of God on the calendar these are the days that he set the Lord spoke again to Moses saying speak to the sons of Israel and say to them the Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations my appointed times are these for six days work shall be done but on the seventh day that's a Sabbath of rest a holy convocation and you shall do no work it is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings these are the appointed times of the Lord holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Sabbath then on the 15th day of the month there is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread on the first day you shall have a holy convocation you shall not do any laborious work but for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord on the seventh day is a holy convocation you shall do no laborious work then the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the sons of Israel and say to them when you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted when does he wave that sheaf on the first day after the Sabbath 
the priest shall wave it. So that's the first day of the week after the 14th and the 15th of the month. Now, first day of the week and number of days can be any combination. In other words, the Passover, because it's the 14th day of the month, can occur on any day of the week. It could be on Monday, it could be on Tuesday, it could be on Wednesday, it could be on Thursday. But whatever day the 14th of the month is, the next day is the 15th, no matter what. That's the beginning of unleavened bread, no matter what. That's a week-long feast, and somewhere during that week, there's going to be a first day of the week. There's going to be what we would call a Sunday somewhere in that week. You got it so far? Yes. And that is designated as the Feast of First Fruits. Now, on the day when he weighs the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, with its drink offering, a fourth of a hin of wine. Until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain, nor new growth, and it shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations for all in all your dwelling places. Then you shall also count for yourselves from that first day of the week, that first Sabbath, you will then count from that day, from the day that you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. That's 49 days then, 7 times 7. And then you'll count to the 50 days to the day after the 7th Sabbath, which means you start counting, you count weeks, 7 weeks, and on the 7th week Sunday, that becomes your next feast day. You shall count 50 days to the day after the 7th Sabbath, and you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. That becomes known as the Feast of Weeks. We just know it by its name, the 50 Penta. We know it as the Pentecost. And you shall bring in from your dwellings two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephah, and they shall be of fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Along with the bread, you shall present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect, and a bull of the herd and two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a soothing aroma to the Lord. And you shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, one year old for a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering with two lambs before the Lord, and they are to be holy to the Lord for the priest. And on this same day, you shall make a proclamation as well. You are to have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It shall be a perpetual statute in all your dwelling places throughout all your generations. Okay, why did we go through reading all those Old Testament rules? Because I want you to see that it was established 1,400 years in advance that God had established very definite days on the lunar calendar. The 14th day of the first month, that is the day of Passover. The 15th day of the month, that is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Sunday that follows Unleavened Bread is the Feast of first fruits. Then you start counting 50, and 50 days later is the Feast of Weeks. We know it by the name Pentecost. That is set in stone. Those calendar dates are laid out by God, and for 1,400 years, Israel followed those rules. Then, the Pharisees come to Jesus when he's walking on the planet. And they say to him, by what authority do you do these things? Because he's walking around saying things like, Moses said to you, but now I say to you. He spoke like one who had authority. He wasn't just one who was taught and then re-saying the things that he had already been taught by the pharisaical teaching of the day. Instead, he taught with authority and he expected his word to be believed 
on par with the already established scripture of God. And so they came to him and said, by what authority do you do these things? Now that is such an important question that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic writers, all mention it. I mean, it's really important. Matthew 21, 23, Mark eleven twenty eight, Luke 20, verse 2, you're all going to find, by what authority do you do these things? And they demanded some kind of sign. The Jews always required a sign. Demonstrate to us that you are who you said you are. And he said to them, God has deigned to give you one sign. In other words, there's really only one sign that proves that Jesus was who he said he was. He did lots of other miracles, but none of those were the sign that proved once and for all that he was exactly who he said he was. He said, God has deigned to give you one sign, the sign of Jonah, they would all know the story of Jonah. They would all know that Jonah had been disobedient to God when God said that he was going to go to Nineveh and preach there. Jonah didn't want to do that. So Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Jesus, by the way, gives credibility to that story. That's one of those stories in the Bible that you can read and think, well, that's a nice Sunday school story to tell children, but that didn't ever really happen. Not in human history. Nobody was ever swallowed by a fish, lived for three days, and then was regurgitated again. That's just a nice story. But Jesus said it happened. He gives credibility to the story and says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale or in the belly of a great fish. So the son of man, speaking of himself, will be three days and nights in the belly of the earth. And then he will rise again. That was such a clear statement that there should have been no question about what his intention was when he went into the grave. In fact, I've often contended that when he rose that first resurrection Sunday morning, there should have been 11 men standing there going, yep, we knew you were coming. We knew you would be here. But instead, they all ran. They scattered. They tried to save their own skin. And when he rose, he did it all by himself. And he said, that is the sign. That's the indication that God is going to give you that this is his son. That's the indication that he's going to give human history that this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, this is the one who took away sin so that never again could we ever be held guilty for our sin because as we looked at last week, the redemption that he purchased for us by his own blood is an eternal redemption. Therefore, had he just died and stayed dead, we could have no confidence that that redemption was actually accomplished on our behalf. But the fact that he got up again is the sure and certain demonstration, the sure and certain proof, the very sign that Jesus himself said is the only one you get, that he is, in fact, the Christ, the risen Lord, the Messiah, and therefore, you're saved. He actually accomplished everything he came here to the planet to accomplish. And I just think it's providentially interesting that we have been studying for the last couple of weeks everything that Christ actually accomplished on the cross leading right up to this particular weekend. I didn't plan it that way, but it worked out that way. Now, I'm not going to go into the controversy. I'm just simply going to say there is no way that the tradition of Jesus dying on Friday and getting up on Sunday can get you three days and three nights. It, it just doesn't work because you can't get three nights. Instead, if you know the Old Testament feasts, as we just looked at, and then you understand that Christ fulfilled those feasts, you have no problem 
that Jesus actually did spend three actual days, three actual nights, exactly like he said, in the belly of the earth, and then he got up again. There's no question that he rose Sunday morning before the sun came up. That's absolute. Remember that on the lunar calendar, a day begins at sundown the previous day. So Sunday began at sundown on Saturday, which means after sundown at Saturday, he could have gotten up at any point during the night. And when they came to the grave, before it was even light, on what we would call Sunday morning, the grave was already empty. He was already up and gone. As I keep trying to stress, it's the most amazing fact of human history. If he did get up, you can understand and be satisfied that God is completely satisfied. You can actually feel free. You can actually feel secure. You can understand that God is no longer angry at you and that your relationship with God has been completely set right by this once-for-all sacrifice. You actually are, as we saw last week, perfected forever. You're ready to go if he got up out of the grave. If he did get up out of the grave, then everything else he said about himself is absolutely true. If he didn't get up out of the grave, then everything else he said about himself is a lie. And we should all go home and live like the sinners we are for the rest of our lives because there is no redemption for any of us. If he got up from the grave, that is the single most important event that ever occurred in human history. Now, the Jews were very determined that the one day that he could not be on the cross was Passover. You read that in the Bible. They were afraid that if he died on Passover, that was just going to make him a martyr. And they didn't want that. And so they argued that he could not die on Passover. But for 1,400 years, God had already been teaching that the final sacrifice was going to occur on the Passover. The Passover lamb had been slain on the 14th day of Nisan for 1,400 years until that final sacrifice was actually on the planet. History tells us, the Bible tells us, that despite the fact that nobody agreed and nobody wanted Jesus to die on Passover, he actually died on Passover. And in fact, when he was walking on the planet, when he came to John, his cousin, for his baptism at the beginning of his ministry, John looked up and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the minute he identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, he was saying, that's your Passover. That's your Paschal Lamb. That thing that you've been doing for 1,400 years is satisfied in him. He had to die on Passover. There was no way that human beings were going to be able to upset the absolute predestinary will of God. His son was going to die on Passover. Why was it so important that he die on Passover? Because he had to be in the grave at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The same way that they had to get all the sin out of the camp, that sinless one had to be in the grave right at the beginning of the 15th day of the month. And that's why what we just read from Luke is so very important. That when he hung there, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and begged for the body of Christ because the high day was approaching. That high day was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the body of Christ had to be taken down off the cross because sunset was coming quickly. They had to quickly get the body if they couldn't fully embalm him if they couldn't put all the spices on him they at least wanted to get a burial cloth around him and get him into the tomb before sundown because then no servile work could be done that's the high day so he was taken down off the cross he was very hurriedly prepared for his burial he was put into that borrowed tomb that belonged to joseph because we read it in the Bible, that the tomb was close by. So it was just convenient. It was a hurry. They were working quickly. The sun is going down. The high day is coming when nobody can do any work. So they quickly went to Joseph's unused tomb, and they put the body there, and they sealed the tomb. And that was the beginning of unleavened bread. Jesus was actually in the grave three days, three nights. Remember what a day is. 
a day begins at sundown. So the beginning of unleavened bread was his first night and then day in the tomb. And then he remained in the tomb for another night and a day. Night and a day takes us to Saturday night, which is the beginning of Sunday at sundown. And as I said, Jesus is up out of the tomb. Now, if you do that math and you work backwards, then Jesus would have been put into the grave on a Wednesday, not a Friday. But since the Bible never says that he was put in the grave on Friday, we have no problem moving the date back to allow Jesus' words to actually be completely accurate. And I would rather go with the accuracy of Jesus' words than the traditions that men have handed us after these many years. Yes. He died on Passover. He was put into the grave at the beginning of unleavened bread. And three days later just happened to be first fruits. And at the very beginning of first fruits, the tomb was opened and he arose and he got up and he was gone in the dark before the women ever got to the tomb, which is why Paul would refer to him as the first fruits of the resurrection. And then you start counting 50 days. Jesus promised his apostles that the spirit of God was going to come to them, be with them and be in them. You start counting 50 days, you get to Pentecost, and at Pentecost, the Spirit of God, just like God had predicted, just like Jesus had promised, the Spirit of God actually came on the apostles and then spread far and wide as Peter preached the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and 3,000 souls were saved that day. And that is the beginning just the beginning of 2,000 years of the Spirit of God continuing to pull people away from the world to Christ and guaranteeing not only their salvation but their eternity. What I'm trying to say is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was not only predicted in great detail, it was then fulfilled in great detail, and it was so effective it's still working to this very moment. To this very moment, people are still being chosen. People are still being brought out of their sinfulness and their worldliness. People are still being brought to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they irresistibly are being brought to Jesus because the power of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ can't be changed in all of human history. Nothing mankind does can change that. Because the almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent God has declared these things from the beginning. When Adam fell and tried to cover up his sin with some of his fig leaves, God sacrificed an animal to put skins on him, the first covering for sin. From the beginning, God was predicting this. And at the end, if there is such a thing as an end, if there is the culmination, everything we read in the book of Revelation, New Jerusalem, holiness to the Lord is everywhere. If that finally comes to its conclusion, its full fruition, and we are all together, finally, around the throne of God, we're still going to be talking about, we're still going to be singing about, we're still going to be praising the Christ that was willing to die and be buried and get up yet again. The power of that singular event does not change. Mankind, human beings can deny it. Human beings resist it. Human beings hold it down in unrighteousness. People say they don't believe it. Doesn't matter. Does not matter. The truth is the truth is the truth. The reality is the reality. And the reality is that God predicted it. Had the Jews doing it for 1,400 years, Jesus actually came and gave the full satisfaction to all those spring feasts. And then he rose up into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, where he still is, where he is still actively calling his church to himself. And that's really good news. Yes. Now, did you pay attention 
to what Micah read to you this morning. He read to you out of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul's entire theology is based in the reality that Christ got up. I'm going to read it again. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, people have always been denying this stuff. Human beings have always been saying, no, that doesn't happen because it can't happen. You know, one of the most common arguments against the resurrection that you'll hear these days, because people just think that all of human history began the day they were born and then continued through their lifetime, and then history stops when they die, People say, well, we've never seen a resurrection in our lifetime, and therefore there can't be anything as a resurrection. Because they think that what they've observed with their own eyes in their own lifetime is the determination of all reality. But the reality of human history is that God predicted this for 1,400 years. That's not a small thing. I'm going to keep emphasizing that. God predicted this in Isaiah when he taught about the suffering servant and he taught substitutionary atonement, God was teaching all this way in advance. And then he brought it to actual fruition in time and history, which is why every so often we'll take the time to just go through the evidences and the proofs of the resurrection because it's the single most provable fact of human history as well. And yet some will say, that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, if Jesus did not get up out of the grave, if there's no resurrection, not even Christ could have been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vanity. And your faith is also vain. And moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed, we testified, we preached against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Do you understand Paul's logic there? He's saying, we're out here preaching a risen Lord. But if there is no resurrection, then the Lord hasn't been raised. And if the Lord hasn't raised, then we're liars. And... We have preached something different than God preached because God didn't raise him up from the dead and we're out here saying God did. So we're actually false witnesses of God if we're out here preaching a risen Christ who didn't raise. That's Paul's logic. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You can go through your whole life depending on the resurrected Lord. But if he didn't resurrect, if he didn't get up again, then your faith is nothing. You're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have actually perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are of all men most to be pitied. I like the King James rendering, we are most miserable because our hope our intention our plan everything we're hoping for the future doesn't exist if Christ didn't get up we're still in our sin we have nothing but judgment to look forward to if Christ didn't get up and that would make us of all men to be most miserable because we would have wasted our life on a completely empty false vain hope that doesn't exist. But now. I love that but now. Amen. Paul says, but now. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. That's the bedrock. That's the, the heart and soul. That's the very core of everything Christianity is. Paul can't even talk about his ministry without 
continually referring to the reality of the resurrection. In Romans 1, right away, writing to the Romans, starting at verse 1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. The central thing on which he based all of those blessings, the peace, the hope, all of that is by the power of God demonstrated through the resurrection of Christ. That's the core. That's the central issue of all Pauline theology. It starts with Jesus got up again. Without that, you got nothing. Without that, no hope, no peace. Without that, no peace with God. Without that, no grace. All you've got to look forward to is the sure and certain judgment of God without the resurrection. In Romans 4, starting at verse 22, reading through 5-2, it says, Therefore it was reckoned to him, to Abraham, as righteousness. Now, not For his sake only was that written, that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believed in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Our very faith in God that is going to be traded for righteousness in heaven eternally is all founded on, is all based in God reckoning to us an imputed righteousness that is based in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So then we believe in him, in God, who raised Christ from the dead. And he who was delivered up because of our transgressions, he died because of our sinfulness, and then he was raised again because of our justification. That's one of the most astounding things you're ever going to hear or read, and I hope that the depth of it is is permeating your heart and brain right now. If Christ got up from the dead, you are justified. Do you understand that that's what God did by his almighty power, by bringing Christ up from the grave? He guaranteed your full imputed righteousness. He justified you on the basis of Christ being raised from the dead. And then he, by his power, actually raised Christ from the dead, guaranteeing your justification. That's astounding. This resurrection thing is a whole lot more than a mythical rodent that leaves you chocolate eggs. It's a whole lot more than sunrise services in the rain. It's a whole lot more than the traditions of men, is what I'm saying. It is the very plan of God since before the foundation of the world that his son was going to redeem and ultimately justify the people that God gave to him. This is the eternal work and plan of God being demonstrated, being acted out in human history. And we get to read about it We get to understand it on an intellectual basis, but then we are also spiritually changed. We are also completely redeemed by it. We are also fully justified by it. We are also completely perfected by it. So not only is this an intellectual and historic exercise, it's the reality of the risen Lord, which is why we sing, he's alive today. I know the risen Savior. He's in the world today. We sang that because we know he's still alive, and that's where we get our hope. That's where we get our confidence, and the traditions of men can all fade away, which is exactly what happened right now. There, I made it. I've brought it full circle. 
So the coronavirus happened. So we can't have services in churches all over the world. People who wanted to get up this morning and go see the sunrise can't do that. People who wanted to go have Easter services because that's one of the two days a year they actually go to church. Can't do that. And people all over the world who love God, who love Christ, who desire to worship him, had nowhere to go because there was no place to meet. So people go online and they watch the service, but I have my questions about that. I, I don't think the church was meant to be an audience. I think when you're watching something online, it's too much like watching something on TV. You become a passive observer rather than an active worshiper. You're meant to be part of the congregation of the Lord. And too many people on the planet today can't do that because of what's happening in the world right now. Well, the absolutely sovereign, omnipotent God is in charge of what's happening right now, and he knows what's happening right now, and he knows that the church is scattered right now, and he knows that we couldn't all gather and collectively sing and worship him right now. And you know what? The risen Lord is still risen. The living Christ is still living. The redemption that he secured for us is still secure. The justification that God has promised us in Christ is still promised to us. And absolutely nothing about our hope, our confidence, and our faith has been changed one whit because our confidence is not dependent on the machinations of this world or whether the government imposes social distancing on us or whether people are getting fined for worshiping in their cars. None of that matters. The reality is God predicted it since before the foundation of the world. Christ actually came and did it. Christ is still doing it today and we are still the recipients of an astounding grace and all of that is true despite anything that may happen to the contrary here on planet Earth. Amen. I preached myself happy. <laughs> so let me leave you with this then. Since that is the very bedrock of our hope. First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3. This, I think, is about as good a way to close this morning's sermon as as you're going to find anywhere in the Bible, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Boy, I like that word caused there. We didn't do it. He caused us to be born again. But how did he cause that? We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where we get that born again thing. That's why the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and has been inhabiting people ever since. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we have a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It is a living confidence of everything that we know is coming in the future. Everything that we're looking forward to. Everything that we've been promised is all guaranteed as a living hope because of the resurrection of the dead. That one thing that Jesus said, you'll get one sign. You get one evidence. You get one proof. The resurrection of the dead. Jesus got up from the dead, and therefore we will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. This world is perishing. It's hard not to look at the world right now and see famines and floods and earthquakes and wars and rumors of war and plenty of pestilences that have been responsible for the state that we're in right now. It's hard not to look at that. I have been saying it for years. I have stood up here and said to you, cheer up, saints. It's going to get worse. 
And now it's getting worse. But, you know, all that means is we're one day closer to Christ coming back. And with each day that passes, we are again another day closer to Christ coming to get us to our eternal hope, to our eternal inheritance that cannot perish. It can't go away. It can't die because it was created by an eternal God. And when an eternal God talks about eternality, he knows what he's talking about. And he says that we have an eternal inheritance that does not perish. Everything on this planet can perish. God's going to one day just burn this planet. And everything on it is going to become ash. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. Because of the new covenant. Because of the new and better promises that are made. There's newness coming. And we're stuck here in the oldness of this world. And the oldness of this world, let's admit it, stinks. But there's newness coming. That doesn't perish. We're going to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and the next word is, and undefiled. It's where God dwells, it's where holiness is, it's where worship continually is centered around the holiness of God and the finished work of Christ. It's astounding, and it's coming, and it's promised, and it doesn't get defiled, which means no sin creeps into it. It remains in that holy state, that holy perfect state, undefiled and unperishing and waiting on us. So I can pretty much do this coronavirus thing. I can get through this. If, uh, if we, any of us do get the virus, we'll get over it. We're healthy people. If we don't, we're going to die. And you know what? We wake up in the imperishable promise that was made for us. In other words, it's kind of a win-win. No matter what happens, God has got us. We're going to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and which will not fade away. That means it's eternal. It continues forever. And I like the fact that Peter says it's ours. That's what we're promised. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Do you realize that that says you've got a standing reservation in heaven? The book of life. Your name is written in the book of life. When you get there, God's going to open the book, find your name and say, yeah, I knew you'd be here. You've got a reservation. It's reserved for you. It's waiting for you. It's all there for you. Just get through this life. Just get through these hardships. Just get through these difficulties. Just get through these these troubles that, that we struggle through. These things that Paul would say were light afflictions. Just get through these. And all that's waiting for you. It is reserved in heaven for you. And you are protected by the power of God. Do you get that? How are you going to get through it? How are you going to make it okay through these troubles? How are you going to be all right even though you weren't able to all get together on Easter? Even though our homecoming plans got blowed up? (laughs) Even though we're not doing any of the things we had planned to do? Even though there are churches that can't meet today? Even though... People have become spectators on the internet. How are they going to get through it with their faith undiminished? By the power of God. It is the very power of God that has protected you through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed. That's what Peter says. It's ready to be revealed. It's all prepared. It's all made up for you. It's all reserved for you. And it's going to be given to you 
It is a salvation that is ready to be revealed. And by the way, that was a very fortuitous clap of thunder. <laughs> that was like punctuation. God is still in charge. All these realities still exist. Coronavirus and the world hasn't changed that one whit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I can't add anything to that except amen. amen. And come soon, Lord Jesus. That's your Easter message for this year. He rose. That's the key to it all. He's alive. Worship him. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.